Welcome to another episode of the Tom Schirmer Podcast. Happy Monday, everyone. Hope you all had a great weekend. Another two weeks on the road for me. Uh, This is week two. Last week, I was in Arkansas and upstate New York. This week, uh, it's Fenton, Missouri today, then headed for Charleston, South Carolina for the Grading from the Inside Out two-day training that'll be in Charleston on Wednesday and Thursday before heading home on Thursday evening. A few more upcoming PD events to remind you of this fall. Uh, We've got the Grading from the Inside Out two-day training with Natalie Vardabasso. That'll be in St. Louis, Missouri, December 6th and 7th. I will be in Seattle, Washington next Monday, October 16th and 17th. Uh, Standards-based learning in action, that two-day training is happening there. So we've got links in the show notes for each of those events, should you be interested in joining us. Uh, Also a reminder that my latest book, Redefining Student Accountability, is available. Link in the show notes for that as well. Okay, thanks for tuning in again this week. A big welcome, of course, to any new listeners joining in for the first time, and a big thank you to some of you who have been very long-time listeners, and I really do appreciate all of you. Uh, This week, my guest is fellow Canadian and math expert John Orr. John is also, along with Kyle Kyle Pierce, the co-host of the Make Math Moments podcast. So we're going to talk about all things math, but if you're not a math teacher, I'd really encourage you to listen uh, as we do talk about the crossover between math and other subjects. In an assessment corner this week, I'm going to talk about why it's so important to distinguish between research-supported ideas and implementation errors. So that's today's plan. Let's get to it. In this week's Mindset Minute... I want to share another sort of mantra that I've learned to live by over the past 15 years or so, and that mantra is this, why not me? Now, previously I gave you uh, the mantra, there's always a spot up front for a winner, and now I'm bringing you, why not me? I actually think this is a good one to counter imposter syndrome, where people get in their heads and begin to question their worthiness to do something or to be something. Imposter syndrome has people questioning themselves, while why not me is the positive assertion to counter that. Now, a few examples I've used over the years are as follows, especially early when I was contemplating leaving my school district job and embarking on this career as a speaker and an author. I would say to myself, you know, many people are going to write books about grading reform. Uh, Why can't I be one of them? I would say things like, there are going to be people who begin and sustain successful careers as speakers and trainers and authors. Why not me? And even recently, the last few years, I said things like, why can't I have a successful education podcast? Why not me? Why can't that be me? Now, obviously, one has to judge what is meant by success. Never said I had the most successful podcast or the best-selling books. But I feel like I've been successful. I'm not afraid to say that. I mean, it's better to be honest and say, yeah, I think I've had a level of success or a successful career, rather than offer you some aw shucks faux humility and pretend that, oh, I'm not sure if I've had any success. I mean, that's the worst. I don't know about you, but that faux humility stuff just nauseates me. (laughs) Anyway... Sounds like a don't at me going on right now. Anyway, uh, the imposter would say, like, who am I to write a book? Or why would anyone listen to me? Or I'm not good enough to start a podcast. When you start using why not me energy, 
and the assertions that go along with it, you're going to shift your energy to what's possible rather than what's not possible. Try it. Think of a, a big, audacious, almost scary goal or dream you have and just apply the why not me mantra to it. Now again, the dream has to be plausible. Not necessarily realistic or practical, but it has to be plausible. If I, if I were to put the why not me energy behind, say, uh, the assertion that I was going to play in the NBA, um, that's not really plausible for me as a 55-year-old, um, marginally talented basketball player by comparison. Um, so I'm not going to believe that. I'm not going to feel it. It's not going to be real for me. But to to say things like, some school is going to implement assessment and grading reform to reimagine what assessment can be for students. Why not our school? Or someone's going to ignite a grading revolution in their school. Why can't it be me? Right? That energy of why not me can be very helpful. Why not me or some version of that? It really does neutralize our imposter syndrome and, and, and put us in a frame of mind to create, to explore, and to accomplish everything we've ever dreamed of doing or becoming. Someone's going to do it. Why can't I be the one? Joining me today for the interview is John Orr. John is a math teacher at the John McGregor Secondary School in the Lambton Kent District School Board in Ontario, Canada. That is a mouthful. You got it. Uh, <laughs> John John leads workshops and presentations on teaching pedagogy in the math classroom. He is also the co-host of the podcast Making Math Moments That Matter, along with his friend Kyle Pierce. And longtime listeners, you might recall Kyle being on the podcast uh, probably about a year ago or so, mm -hmm. or less than a year ago. So great to have uh, John here as well. Uh, lately, John uh, has been excited about promoting struggle in his students and talking math with primary age kids while creating math prompts for mathbeforebed.com. John, uh, glad to have you here. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, Tom. Thanks. Uh, thanks so much for being here. I've uh, I've always been a fan of the show and uh, good to, to chat again. Um, you know, yeah. I, we had you on our podcast. Ooh, I think it was a year ago as well, like after yeah. the after our summit, you know, um, a while ago. So uh, glad to be here and uh, looking forward to chatting math and assessment and all those things. <laughs> we've we've squared the circle. I've been on yeah. your podcast. Kyle's been on mine. Yeah. And now we finally, I don't know if it's go. a circle or we a triangle it. or whatever it is. We did something. <laughs> That's what we did. Uh, great to have you here. Before we dig into math, let's talk about you and your career. I gave sure. some of the highlights, where you're working, et cetera. But but let's dig into your professional journey so far. Um, where did you start your career? Have you been in the same board the whole time? And maybe, you know, sure. what are some of the pivotal moments that kind of led you from being classroom teacher to now being classroom teacher, podcast host, and really a change agent when it comes to math education? Oh, sure, sure. Yeah, I'm glad to share that. It's, it's, uh, I'm glad you brought up like where you started because I think we asked this question to our guests too. And it's kind of like, I forget about like the where we started, but mm -hmm. I actually, I actually haven't taught in the same school board. Uh, my whole career, almost the whole career. So this is be year. This is year nineteen. Uh, but the okay. first two years, uh, I taught overseas. I taught in the Caribbean. Um, I, 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 you know, I, I graduated a, with a math degree in my in a teaching degree. And I, my only goal, being a single guy, 
uh, at that time, like 24 years old, was like, I want a job somewhere. I just want to like not have to like supply teach. I don't want to, I want a permanent job. That would be great. And I applied to uh, international school, um, which was the um, uh, Caribbean International Academy in, in St. Martin on the island of St. Martin. So I worked there two years uh, and taught math, uh, taught physics. I taught a variety of things because the school was so small. Um, and we got a lot of experience, back, you know, down there, met my wife down there. Uh, okay. And then uh, well, then we moved home uh, to kind of uh, Chatham, Tilbury area, Windsor, Essex, kind of bounced around for a little bit. But yeah, like we I taught math high school. I was a very traditional math teacher. Um, and it, my, my wife is a Montessori trained educator. And, and she had a lot of influence over me over the you know, my career and trying to like poke at my very fundamental or traditional beliefs. My fat, my father was a, was a high school math teacher, his whole career. And I always viewed, you know, this is the way you taught math. There's a handbook to teach math. This is the way you follow, you know, you, you got to take up your homework. You got to give out the lesson. You got to tell them what the, the definitions are. You got to say, here are the examples. And then here's the homework again. Like I did this for like 10 years and just think that that was the way it was supposed to be done. But I, I got to a point, you know, I felt like it was early in my career, you know, probably within those 10 years. And I, and I think I thought this, I, this can't be what it is every day. You know, I've got kids who hate mathematics. I've, I'm getting bored of what's happening in class. Um, and I, and I wasn't, I think challenging a lot of kids. Um, I would say I was like, I would say I was like, I got this, I gotta have this really, you know, robust math class. I gotta make sure that I'm, you know, drilling the kids so hard to get them ready for university. And what I would think I was missing was, was I was probably failing so many students back then of, of who really needed my help. And I made some fundamental shifts. I remember, I remember a kid getting, you know, knocking at my door and, and he was late and he was probably late the fifth time. And mm -hmm. my response to him was just, just to get mad. You know, it was like, you're late. You shouldn't be late. But, but I think like later on, I realized that it's like, I didn't ever ask that student, like what was going on? Like, why are you late? Like, is there any extenuating circumstances? Like I, I just was like, I think I, I was very concerned about I'm, I'm a conveyor of mathematics and not a teacher of students, you know, and, and I, and I, and I held to that belief for a long time. And it wasn't, it wasn't until like just wife influence over time. Like and she's telling me about, you know, treating the child as a whole and thinking about these other things and trainings along the way, um, starting to change my, my, what my practice looks like. I just started to be more, you know, thinking about what, how to reach the students who really need me changed the way I was teaching math lessons, started to use more engaging techniques, started to think of radical, radicalize what I was doing, you know, radicalize for the traditional <laughs> math teacher, like what my assessment practices look like. Right. Um, and over that time, I started to share what I was doing online and in writing my changes along the way. And that kind of picked up some steam and met my, you know, my business partner and, and also fellow teacher uh, with, you know, the fellow uh, podcast host, Cal Pierce. And we started, you know, sharing, bouncing ideas back and forth for, you know, mm -hmm. eight to nine years now. And, and uh, that came, that became Make Math Moments. And, and we've, you know, we've been sharing lessons on Make Math Moments. We have the podcast. We've been doing that for about five mm -hmm. years now. And we, you know, we, we're meeting so many interesting teachers. And we're, we're talking with so many great people about what their math programs look like. What are they doing in their math classes? And 
kind of just sharing all these great experiences and in, in our journeys along the way. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. so it's, it's been a, it's been a crazy journey over, over all this time. Um, but basically, yeah, very traditional to a teacher who's more concerned about, you know, teaching your, my students, but also helping them really understand mathematics at a, at a conceptual mm-hmm. level instead of a very procedural level. Like I, I, that was probably a, a huge change as well is, is just thinking about how do I get my students to really understand and not go, you know, why, why do I need to know this? And, and instead of just, Hey, memorize these tips and techniques techniques and let's move on. Like, yeah, but, but it's, uh, it's been a big change. The um, it's, it's interesting how you find so many people who are influencers and, ch- and I know that term gets thrown around a lot, but mm-hmm. real change agents and really uh, progressive on the other side of the ledger often start as those very traditional teachers. I was a very traditional high school history teacher, very punitive, very old school and then you almost go 180 the other direction and start leading the charge, right? So mm-hmm. as you think about being a traditional math teacher, I can I I know what I experienced that when I was in school, which was you know the drill. It's always odds only, uh, 900 yeah, questions, yeah. odds only for yeah. homework. Uh, it was just it was all of that. So I mean, it's it's just an incredible. Yeah. The more you see people kind of transform that way and and move in the opposite direction. Well, I I think I think like we had no choice, you know, like we we all experienced like this is the thing you go you go to be, you know become teachers teachers college or your pre service mm-hmm. teaching and and they talk you know theory 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 but then you still go to the classroom for your practical and you're yeah. still with teachers who are teaching the way that they were taught and it's right. it's it's kind of it feels depressing but it's actually really exciting. I, I, this is the way I think about it these days now is it's 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 exciting because if we're doing the change now if we're if we're you know changing our practices and we're Mm -hmm. trying to spread that as much as possible like think about our society today with social media you know twitter's out there and we're spreading word this way people are listening to podcasts more and more every day and and those teachers are going to be taking the practices that we're sharing you know, Kyle and I partner with school districts across North America on changing what's happening in their classrooms and, and strengthening their programs. And those teachers will eventually get stronger on, on new techniques, on the techniques that actually work, that are rooted in research. Mm-hmm. And, and we will change math class. That's the exciting part, right? It's going to change. And then you're going to have, a, you're going to have this whole whack of kids who yeah. have gone through that. And now that's the way they view mathematics. And mm-hmm. those kids will become teachers and it won't be so hard. It's like a flywheel, right? It's like, it's like there's a, like think about a flywheel that kind of spins around and around and around and around. It's, it takes that, that big machinery flywheel so much effort to get going. Like it's yeah. so much effort to spin that wheel. But then once that momentum picks up, it's easier and easier and easier to spin that wheel. Like that's, I feel like that's the way math education is going to go. Yeah. It's just yeah. going to take a long time. Yeah, it is exciting, and certainly uh, understanding the the thinking behind math as opposed to memorizing the tricks and all those things can help you short term. But if you don't understand that the the math behind the math, if you will, right. uh, that, that's problematic going forward for sure. Okay, let's um, let's start with this question. Sure. Um, big question: Are the math wars over? Uh, for listeners who may not know, the math wars. It's kind of this fight that's been going on. You could trace it all the way back to kind of the standards movement or the outcomes movement of the 90s. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. this fight between the advocates of traditional math instruction, which we've talked about, algorithms, direct mm-hmm, instruction, mm-hmm. modeling, 
and those who favor more inquiry, uh, student discovery, kind of conceptual understanding. Is that war over? Have we settled that? Or is it still ongoing? Will it ever be over? Is there always going to be a battle? Where are we at, John? You are the definitive voice on this today. <laughs> <laughs> Where are we at yeah. with the math wars? What's going on? Yeah, I, I, I don't think so. I don't think so. Because it's it, you're always going, I think we're always going to have the two sides. That's, yeah. that's that whole flywheel. I think we're still trying exactly. to push it. Okay. You know, we're yeah. still trying to push it until until we pick up that steam which is down the road when we've got another mm-hmm. generation of kids coming to be teachers. I yeah. think we're always going to have those, you know, you know, traditional teachers who are like myself, who are like my dad, who are like teachers that I've worked with, who are fundamentally believe that, that, you know, telling kids the fastest way to solve a problem, um, you know, memorize this, this, this algorithm, because that's the, the fastest way to do it. Like they, be- right. they believe they're helping their students, you know, just get through math, but it's a fundamental belief about what really mathematics is, right? Like these teachers mm-hmm. are saying like math is just a set of things to memorize procedures to follow, to mm-hmm. get the right answer. Whereas the other side, right? The other side of the the war just fundamentally believes that mathematics, what you're learning in mathematics is not that right. What we want to mm-hmm. be teaching our students in mathematics is to be thinkers is to use their, you know, their, 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 strategies to solve problems like helping mm-hmm. kids with flexible strategies giving them models to use um right. so that they 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 aren't left wondering like what procedure do i use it's no we've we've actually you know given you a, some strategies and models that you can use in lots of different situations that are f- flexible enough to transfer from topic to topic to grade to grade to grade that these things can be useful for solving problems. Like it's just a, I think it's just a fundamental difference of what people believe mathematics mm-hmm. is. And until, until there's like more alignment in that, they will, I don't think they'll ever be over. Um, but it, you know, I think some people will say like, well, I guess the next question that many people will ask or, or wonder about, about the math wars is like, well, do I do all this or do I do all this? It's like, do I just, do I just teach, all algorithms or do I mm-hmm. just go all like tasks and get my kids thinking in my class? Like, like for us, it's like, you got to have the right balance, right? Like there's, there's right. always got to be the balance because, you know, one of the eight effective teaching practices is to help your students, you know, build conceptual understanding to work towards procedural fluency, like from NCTM's mm-hmm. principle to action, that is one of the eight effective teaching practices. And that concludes both. Like people will say pr- procedural fluency is knowing how to be, you know, knowing these, these procedures, knowing how to do this. Now, I'll say that the flexibility in, in, in being really fluent means we should be able to move within strategies. Mm-hmm. Um, and But that also comes from starting with conceptual understanding. So it's like we mm-hmm. want to start with conceptual understanding so students really understand what's happening in the mathematics topics they're learning. And then we move towards the fluent and flexible strategies so that it becomes fluent. It becomes second nature to, you know, yeah. know your basic math facts. So, so those, those things, I don't, I don't think it's ever going to be over, but I think we want to always remember that there are say two different philosophies of math and there's like, it's a spectrum. There's going to be lots of people right. in between. And, right. but I would say we want to always just be, you know, find the right balance for the kid that you're working with. Yeah. No, I think like like most things in life, uh, balance is the answer. Right. If you were to let's let let me ask you this question: if if we were to pick up on that theme, and think about reaching across the aisle, let's say on the one hand you've got the traditionalists, mm-hmm. on the other mm-hmm. hand you've got the progressives, or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. What's the one thing 
that the traditional math teacher does that you think is quite valuable in a modern assessment classroom? And well, let's start with that and then I'll come to the and question. So mm. what's the one thing if you had to, you know, they always say in political debates where it's like, yeah. say something nice right. about your opponent. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so let's say something nice well, about traditional math. Teaching. What is the one thing they do or they advocate that you can get behind and go, yeah, that makes sense. I think I think everybody because I think you're not going to find a teacher who doesn't want the best for their student. Right. Like, I think everybody wants that. And I and I right. and I think that's where it comes is that where I was saying before is that it's a fundamental difference of what they think is best. So you've got a, you've got a, you've got a group of teachers or a teacher. Um, I always picture a particular teacher that I worked with for a long time. And, and you know, mm -hmm. when, the, when you think of this teacher, this teacher does believe, you know, that if I, if I say you should memorize this technique, just follow the steps, they believe they're helping them the best. The, this most of us teachers got in to help kids. Well, how do I help kids? You know, learn math is they think that I should just show you how to do it. If I can show you how to do it and then you can do it, then you're going to be great. You're going to get a great mark on a, on your test. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think I think, you know, knowing that then knowing that every teacher has that care about what's best for kids. I think we just need to think about what it really means to do mathematics and what it what we're really teaching our kids if if that's if that's where we want to go because i think i think we all care and it's just once that teacher starts to fundamentally shift the what re, you know what teaching mathematics is then they will probably take a step to this side over here and go you know what well i'd love for my kids to be better problem solvers i'd love for my kids to be better thinkers about mathematics they rely too heavily on asking me questions when it's not the right time i'd love for them to be more resilient you know yeah. so oh that's 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 a pebble that's in your shoe. Well, you know what? Maybe this strategy here can be really helpful for you in your class. Like right, right. these are some of the questions and, and things that we we talk with teachers on a regular basis about too. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. My and was going to be what's the one thing they've got to let go? I think I I think if if we're gonna move into say this assessment talk, I I think the when when we think about traditional math teachers, I did this for a long time. And, and I think we chatted about this when you were on the podcast, our podcast as well, right, is that right. my traditional yeah. self, I was, I kind of, you know, thinking about, I'm a, I'm a high school teacher. I'm a, you know, I'm thinking about my senior high school classes that I, I would, I would stand behind that the, the test that went down on September 25th, <laughs> that whatever you got on that test that I created, you know, it's yeah. going to go in my mark book and that's it. It's going to, it's going to stay there. It's going to live there until the end of the semester. And if, if I feel good at the end of the semester, maybe I'll let you, you know, wash that test mark away or, you know, you take your best five or, you know, like I used to, I used to stand behind that. I remember getting in, a, in an argument with a parent at a parent teacher interview. And this was when I held that firm belief that the, the parents said, well, you know, I think he can do better than this. And I would say, well, I haven't seen any better than this. This is what he got on the test. And they're like, well, what, what can he do to make it up? He's like, he can't. He's just got to do better next time. Yeah. And they would say, well, how can he do better this next time? And my only answer at the time in, was was that I, all I really knew about the students back then was like, he probably is just not doing all his homework. You know, he's just right. he needs to do more homework. Yeah. And I think that's what we need to let go um, in, mm -hmm. in, especially in high school math. Like I think elementary math teachers do a little bit better job on, on that than yeah. us, um, mm -hmm. us high school teachers. And, and that's been a, a big change for me on thinking about 
Mm-hmm. You know, why, why was I so set that, you know, it needed to be that date, that time when my curriculum documents, my standards, you know, the, the Ontario curriculum here, here in Ontario, which is the list of all the standards we have to teach. It says right at the top, by the end of the course, the student will, and then it lists all the stuff the kids have yeah. to demonstrate, right? And no. Yeah. Yeah. And so then I, I remember reading that, that phrase and I'm thinking like, why did I always think it had to be September 25th? Like what, what right. meant that it was locked in? Like why wasn't yeah. I allowing the student more time later to demonstrate learning? And that's when I went down that whole path of, of thinking about like, how do I set this up so that it, it, it feels like it's rigorous enough for kids and it feels like I'm, I'm rewarding growth and how can I, mm-hmm. you know, take into kids account of knowledge over the course of the semester and balance that so that, you know, the student feels rewarded that they, they could always work in, 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 in proceed and, and show growth along the way. Yeah. Um, I think that's what we have to let go of as, as high school math teachers. Yeah. And, and I think other, other subjects, I think do that better. Um, I think okay. we've, we've always had a hard time, uh, in general saying like, Oh, mm-hmm. you've got that mark. That's it. We got to move on. We're, we're doing something yeah. else. You're stuck. If it didn't happen on September 25th, did it really happen? Right. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. That's, that's a really good segue into my next question yeah. because I wanted to ask you to generalize a little bit, which, which isn't always fair and it's hard to do because no group of teachers is a monolith. But I'm going to ask you to generalize a little bit. And this is a bit of a two-part question. And it kind of picks up on something you just said there. Mm -hmm. You, of course, have friends and colleagues who teach other subjects. And it's really hard because sometimes when you work with people in a school, you don't actually work with them. You never actually observe them. You're collegial and you might teach next door or whatever, but you don't actually know. So this may be a bit of a challenge, but I'm sure you and your non-math friends talk shop, you talk Mm -hmm. teaching, you do Mm -hmm. all those things. So here's what I want to ask you. I want to ask this in two parts. First, let's talk about strength and say, what could teachers of other subjects learn from math teachers about being a more effective teacher? You co- Of course, you'll know mm-hmm. where the part two is going, but right, let's start with right. that one. Just what, I, what are some things that math teachers do that other teachers could pick up on? Yeah, that's, that's, that's great. I think, I think for me specifically in my experience with, you know, my career is that I think the community of math teachers in general have, have been very helpful. They've been, you know, rewarding, uh, supportive. Um, like when you, if you search on the internet, you know, math help or, or math help probably isn't great because you're going to get like tutors and stuff like that. But I mean, like math lessons, math ideas, math strategies. Mm-hmm. If you search that or, or you say head to Twitter and type in like math and, and, you know, support, you're going to get like this crazy amount of, of community. You're, you're mm-hmm. this, the supportive community in the math community, in my opinion, has been the most change, like the most beneficial as a change for me that I didn't, I don't see in the other subjects. Like maybe it's just because I live in the math land, but when I talk with other teachers in different schools um, mm-hmm. that are teaching other subjects, they just don't seem to say that they have the same supportive community around. Mm-hmm. Um, specifically right. for me, you know, in the last 10 years, you know, probably not the last couple of years, uh, more specifically, but Twitter was was a big uh, a big supportive community. We called it the math Twitter blogosphere, which was, mm-hmm. which was a bunch of people tweeting about what their lessons look like, how to hear, you know, links to blogs, li- links to full posts on like, this is what my lesson looked like. You should do it in your class. Here's the files, you know? And, and it was like wow. that movement was very mm-hmm. big for me in my change. And, and I, mm-hmm. and I have to credit a lot of 
the the changes I made those those ten years um, to the to the people there. Like like I didn't met, meet Kyle, who who's my my co-host with the Make Math Moments That Matter podcast. I, I met him through Twitter. It was like through supportive communities and conferences mm-hmm. and things like that. Mm-hmm. So I feel like the math community and as a whole it seems to be very supportive. Whereas, like I said, I, I, I don't see that in say some of the other subjects or not as strong in some of the other subjects, but I think right. you're, you're, you're not, a you know, you weren't a math teacher, I think. So uh, sometimes I think you were right. But uh, yeah, but uh, you, you title the subjects. What did, what did you think? Like, was there, did you feel like there was a supportive community? Like, every well, it was, way you could reach out and a question would be answered like that. Cause that's the, what it was for math for a long time. When I taught math, uh, I always like to say I'm not a math teacher. I just played one in real life for three right. years. Yeah. Um, I taught middle school math, uh, eighth grade. And, uh, you know, the online communities weren't the same as they were. There were email listservs. There were things that we used to do back in the day with with sort of pedestrian technology. But I didn't I didn't tap into it. There probably was, but I, but I didn't tap into it for sure. But I, I see that online. It's really interesting, too, that... Uh, even my son who's been going through university and his physics degree is he's been learning calculus and there's just so many YouTube videos and there's just right. so many places to source that you really do see that. And, you know, NCTM has been a leader in a lot of, in terms of subject areas. It were the first to, to publish standards back in 1989. So, you know, you, you really do see that. I think, I think, you know, I, I tend to, I'm sort of nodding my head as you were saying that, like, yeah, you see that with the math community for sure. And there's something very, very um, freeing about the fact that people are willing to share because you see in high school, especially so many teachers, not, not the majority, but enough to notice, keep things close to the chest. They don't like to share their strategies. They don't like to share their approaches. And that's something I think we could all learn from math teachers, but here's the flip question, John. And the question is what could math teachers learn from other subject areas? Is there a particular subject, for example, that you think of where you look at sort of the collection of teachers mm-hmm. in that subject and say, you know, I wish as math teachers, we were more like that. Uh, English. I, for, for me, if as a high school teacher, I always looked at the English departments as, okay. s- you know, s- something to strive for because I think they, like mm-hmm. they've done such a great job of like, you know, conferencing with students and, and trying, mm. you know, first draft, second draft, you know, final draft. Like I always thought it was like, well, why aren't we doing more of that in math class? Like, why is it always like, here's your homework, here's your homework, here's your homework test. And it's like, that yeah. was, and that's like <laughs> the final draft, but we never like, we never asked kids to hand in stuff for them to, to like give them feedback. Like you might give feedback. them feedback on, but it'd be like, you would give yeah. a mark, right? Like you wouldn't, you, this was like me on the old days and, and so oh, yeah. many teachers today you would throw the mark and the kids would look at the mark and throw it out or or they wouldn't they wouldn't you know look at any feedback if you wrote it that's because you wrote a mark plus the feedback with the feedback instead of just the mm-hmm. feedback um and whereas english teachers i always felt like they were doing more feedback less mark and and you were getting kids to fix it and then resubmit it until it was like level four or you know right. the farthest yep. part on, on the rubric and yeah and that was like a, a thing that i i remember pulling from from them and, and thinking about this is what i want my say assessment check-ins or little mini quizzes to look like and, and i redesigned them to have like a whole column that was just feedback you know i I'd read dylan williams book assess um Oh, uh, formative assessment. Uh, mm-hmm. and it was, you know, the idea of like, you could, you know, leave, you want to leave feedback, but not the mark. You're going to get, you're going to mm-hmm. get better results that way. And yeah. so it was like, let's just leave feedback until it was perfect in math class. It was like, mm-hmm. it's not done until 
it's perfect. And like, here's your one sentence to fix. And, and, you know, cause it, in certain classes, like I taught grade nine applied for a long time, which was, you know, not the track on to a university it would be going to college. Right. Um, right. Uh, but not university. It's now we're now all grade nine is all, uh, one, one stream now, uh, D stream grade mm-hmm. nine. But you know, when I was teaching those students, you would give them a mark. If you put a 60 on it, half of those kids would be like, yes, I, I passed. And then they wouldn't look at it. And you know that, you know, if you didn't write the 60 and you gave them the feedback and said, you should fix this before I accept it, Mm -hmm. they will go, they they will fix it. They will, they will strive. And all of a sudden, you know, when they were imagining that 60 was their their benchmark and you don't Mm -hmm. tell them that that's your benchmark, you, you, you know, give them the feedback until it's your benchmark is like an 85. All mm-hmm. of a sudden, you got kids who are striving for 85 who'd never would have strived right. just because you withheld the mark and you just said, let's right. just make this better. Let's just make this yeah. better. Yeah. And that changed a lot of a lot of what we did in my math classes for our students and this, you mm-hmm. know, the, the, the teachers that uh, we're working with in other school districts on their assessment policies as well. It's it's we, we there are things we can do to help push kids and have them strive towards things that they might not have achieved if mm-hmm. they had just thrown a mark on. So so I I, I always. I've always looked on the English department as, as doing that well. I know the other departments probably do that, uh, you know, similar things, but I, I always right. take a, a playbook out of that, uh, that department. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, it's interesting because we know the importance of feedback. Mm-hmm. Um, and we know that um, being able to revise and learn from our mistakes, but in that sort of traditional branch of math instruction, it's like you're either correct or you're, infinitely wrong. Right. And that's just the way it is. Right. Yeah. Um, but interesting, you know, I, I want to talk a little bit about assessment now. Sure. Uh, this is a big topic. So I want to try to narrow the focus a little bit because I think there are obviously we know that assessment practices in general need to modernize and math in particular is one where I think mm-hmm. in some respects, math might be leading the charge when it comes to innovative assessment practices and whether that that be about problem solving or inquiry based, you know, investigations or deep dives or what, whatever that realm is. But I can see a, a, a situation where a math teacher who is more of a traditional math teacher, but has the desire to change their assessment practices. Mm-hmm. So here's where I want to go with this question. I've been a traditional math teacher. I want to change. I want to modernize my assessment practices, but I am completely overwhelmed by all of the possibilities that I'm almost frozen in time. I don't mm. know where to start. Right. So let's at, let's ask the question this way specifically. If if I'm a math teacher, and again, I'm I'm trying to ask you to generalize, and it's not fair to do that, but let but generalize. If I'm a math teacher and I want to begin modernizing my assessment practices. What's the best way for me to start? Like where, what's the least I could do to start bringing about the greatest effect? So I start to build my confidence in being able to use more modern assessment practices in my classroom. Sure, sure. I think there's two parts I, I think I want to I want to touch on for sure. Um, one, um, one is more, more like logistics probably because I think math teachers specifically are, are, are accustomed to think of what the grade book looks like. How do I get that in my grade book? Mm-hmm. If I can't think about how it goes in my grade book, I can't think about it. So, so, so one, you know, one way to get started is probably easier for for a teacher uh, who's, you know, who has been traditional uh, is thinking about redesigning what your grade book looks like. Instead of saying test one, test two, test three, test four, you know, you might want to think about more holistic on what the standards are. So think about big ideas. Like what are some of the big things you want to, you're you're tackling. So usually you can pull this right from the expectations, you know, from your province or from your state, 
you know, you could think about what are the overall expectations? Like, you know, they're already written somewhat in student friendly language. They might say, you know, um, you know, by the end of this course, the student can solve two step equations. And if this is like, say, a grade nine class. Um, so you already have some of these big chunks that are the standards. And, you know, when you're as a traditional teacher, you've probably you've probably been making your tests like unit one, unit two, unit three. And then quiz one, quiz two, quiz three, which were chapters, which were supposed to cover the standards. Um, mm -hmm. But your mark would go in one mark or maybe a couple marks for that one test. And then, you know, when I would have that parent teacher interview, when I said, the only thing I can tell them is the mark isn't that great. They, I can't let them rewrite the test, do more homework. But when you change your mark book to be more standard, so this is like outcome-based approach or standards-based approach, right? Yeah. So you're, you're listing standards and you're tracking what a student, where a student's progress is on the standards. When that parent asks me now in a, a parent-teacher interview, you know, what, what can we do to get better here? Now I can look at the standards and go, well, it's not so great on two-step equations, but doing really great on measurement. You know, it's like you've got you've got like the arsenal to talk right, about what they need to do and what they haven't done yet. And and that that can change things about how you how you proceed. It's going to change maybe even about what your lesson structures looks like down the road. It might change, you know, what what your tests look like down the road, because you're now organizing things by standard instead of instead of units. And, and that can, that can open the door for you as a, as a, as an educator to kind of like go down a pathway and start to think about what those policies look like for you and how do you help kids progress on those standards? Like it's an, it's a, it's a, it's an opener. It's a, it's an easy logistics opener mm -hmm. okay. um, to, to kind of go down that path. The second thing is I think doing again, maybe borrowing from other subjects. And I think other subjects do a better job of, of using professional judgment. You know, like we, we are professionals, like we, 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 we've been doing this for a long time and, and you know what, uh, you know, what, what, you know, excelling at solving two-step equations looks like. And so, mm -hmm. so I think, you know, when we think about the three prongs of, of assessment, you think about observations, conversations, and product, math teacher has been heavily for the history only product, never mm -hmm. taking into observations and conversations into a mark because you would say like, to a parent, well, he earned this mark because the test said so, which is all product. And so I think teachers in, in math in general have been scared to say that the mark that I've put on, on the report card is my professional judgment of where they are on the standards so far. And, and, and using their professional judgment, using the observations and conversations to influence, you know, how to mm -hmm. proceed, how to use that to help push a kid down the line you know, how to report that mark. Like, I think we need to do a better job of, of saying it's okay that mm -hmm. what you've witnessed uh, is, is an important aspect to help a kid move forward on, on say those standards or those outcomes and help it, you know, cause you, you take that into account. Every teacher has done that already. They just haven't used it to kind of like help them move forward mm -hmm. um, as mm -hmm. much as they could or report you know, report to parents. And I think, I think that's the second piece. It's, it's a bigger piece because it's, it's a bigger piece for a, a traditional teacher to be okay with the mark on the paper from that pro like only product um, mm -hmm. doesn't necessarily have to dictate what say your, your mark is. And when we talk evaluation. I think those are two great points. I think the idea it's so subtle and yet so obvious and, and actually 
it's kind of minor, but it's major. By reorganizing your grade book, you really put this. I mean, it's so interesting to say you put the focus on the learning. And whenever you say that, it's like, well, no kidding, Tom. That's what we do. We focus on the learning. But it's amazing how we get distracted by the task types. It's a test. It's a quiz. It's right. an assignment as opposed to look at the standard or the outcome that we're working on. I love that part. And the other part, too, in terms of just thinking about, um, you know, just opening up ourselves to to looking at beyond the right wrong the depth of understanding is something especially in math i I would maybe not especially in math maybe that's not fair but the idea that there's being wrong because i have no conceptual idea how to answer the question or i could be wrong and make a simple mistake four times three becomes seven and next thing you know my calculation is off but Mm -hmm. i knew what formula to use so the idea of looking at depth of understanding as opposed to right wrong i think is something where we could really just, sure. just look at the type of error that students make and you can see that your judgment is, does the student have a sophisticated understanding of the concepts? It's something I often use with teachers in, in my assessment workshops is to say to a math teacher, for example, I say, if I gave you a math test and I asked you to just read it, you couldn't mm-hmm. mark it, you couldn't circle anything, couldn't mm-hmm. highlight it. You just read it, read it for the correct answers, read it for the simple mistakes, read it for the egregious misunderstandings. If at the end of the, you reading that test, I held it up and I asked you this simple question, does that student have a sophisticated understanding of the math, a competent understanding of the math. They partway there, are they still a beginner. You could tell me that in five seconds. Totally. That's the judgment, right? But totally. one of the reasons I think people don't trust their judgment is we don't talk to each other. We don't trust our judgment because we don't know if our colleagues would make a similar decision based on the evidence True. they're looking at. So if we get together and talk to each other, I think we can make that happen. I love both of those points, John. I really wanted to pick up on those because I think they are two very important mm-hmm. points when it comes to sound assessment. Let's um, let's finish up with this question before we get to the two that I always ask. Last question about uh, about math. Where do you think the research on math assessment needs to go? Like, where do we need to go with this? What do we need to know about mm. math assessment that we don't already know? Yeah, I think I think the research has to has to come from you know what happens you know what happens when uh, you know we're we're getting all this you know I think there's that movement like I was saying about standards based grading and like where where do, like when we collect all this data you know what what are most teachers using the data for and like, what is the, you know, what data are we using to push our students forward? I think there's a lot of misconception on, on what, uh, you know, if I'm, if I'm changing it so that I'm looking at outcomes and how do I use those outcomes to push the learning forward, which is what we want, like formative assessment, you know, the other, one of the things that I've been viewing my assessment in my classes, like almost everything is formative assessment because I want to use everything to push their learning down the road until that final mark goes in at the the end of the course. Like that's, that's where it's like, I figure out, you know, our finally evaluate, like there you go, like the course is over, you know, we need to report there. But I, I feel like I'd love to know more about like, what's, like what are most people are doing around around you know North America or outside of North America like like I know there are people you know using this technique but how are they using it I'd, I'd love more data to kind of suggest like where the actual practices are used and we know that where the theoretical practices are supposed to be but it, it would be great to collect as much information as we could to say like what's actually happening uh, mm-hmm. when we collect this data and how we're using with our students and it, you know, 
which parts are being, you know, useful for those students and which ones aren't. I think, I think there's just, there's not a lot of like actual collecting of, of the real data of where real teachers are. Does that make sense? Yeah. It does make sense. I think that a lot of times it's, you know, there is the theoretical research, but then there's also looking at a lot of research is hard to conduct in schools because it's hard to experiment, you know, or with kids. But if we could find some authentic evidence that maybe looks at things longitudinally or do a little bit of more action research and just kind of do some Mm -hmm. analysis on that, I think it could be very helpful as well. Okay. Two questions left as we finish up here, John. And these are questions I ask everyone who comes on the podcast. The first one um, and you can take this in any direction you want to. It doesn't even have to be about math, but I want it to be about education. So educationally speaking, like what gets you out of bed in the morning? What gets you fired up? What gets you motivated for the day? I, currently right now, uh, I think it's it's working with teachers who are, you know, have pebbles in their shoes. And I think we, we use that phrase on our mm-hmm. podcast a lot. It's like, I want to know all the pebbles in math teacher's shoes, you know, as many as many as I can, because I, I think that's super exciting to when you it's like when you're going to the student who you get that aha moment. It's like mm-hmm. when you because a lot of a lot of the work Kyle and I are doing now is partnering with school districts and, and helping them relieve pebbles in their shoes. Like what what's mm-hmm. like what's causing you right now this pain that if we can pluck it out of there, then, you know, your life is going to be easier. Your job feels easier. Your kids are going to learn more You're, Everyone's excited to go to work. Everyone's excited to be in math class. Like those things mm-hmm. are like what, why I'm getting up at 5.00 AM to like keep the work going because it's, 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 it's like when you pluck one of those and a teacher mm-hmm. is like, man, that was like, it's been 10 years and I would just wish this was plucked earlier than that. Yeah. Um, you know, and I think, I think when you spark that change or you give them that next step that says like, it can be like this, this is what you can be working on. This can be, be the change that you need right now. Then yeah. it's, it's super exciting. Um, and that's, uh, that's, I would say, get me up every day right now. Yeah. Love that. Love that. Uh, good reason to get up in the morning. That's for sure. Totally. Um, last question as we finish up is more of a fun question. Not that math isn't fun. Don't get me wrong, John, but, uh, um, let's, let's talk about food. I love food. Me too. You live in Tilbury, Ontario. So my question is quite simply, where's fine dining hole in the wall, all points in between. Where's the best place to eat in Tilbury, Ontario? Hey, uh, Tilbury, I don't know if you, you, you know, Tilbury is one of those stops on the, on the 401. It's on the highway. There's, there's okay. a truck stop and that's pretty much it. So, okay, so till, somewhere close, somewhere in the vicinity, <laughs> somewhere in the vicinity. I'm going to, I'm going to like, I'm going to skirt around it, Tom. I'm, I'm going to say, right, because there's enough. like 18 pizza places in like this <laughs> tiny little area. Like this is all we have. It's like a Kentucky fried chicken, a Tim Hortons. Yeah. And 18 pizza places for some reason we're like got to be the most you know per capita pizza place uh and they're all terrible they're all terrible and i love pizza like i i you know um oh that's that's cruel that's cruel i know it's like there's i've tried them all i think and it's like none of them are that good uh so my my go-to tom is pizza on my house fridays you're welcome to come on over okay the best place to eat is pizza at your house yeah all right next time i'm in pizza if I'm ever in Tilbury, I will. Uh, yeah, you did skirt around that. Well played. Well played. Uh, listeners, you can and should follow John on social media, on Twitter, Instagram. It's at more, M-O-R-R underscore geek. That's his Twitter handle Mr. and Instagram. Or yep. Mr. Or geek uh, is the handle. Or follow at 
uh, make math moments. Um, also, uh, John is on Facebook and LinkedIn. The podcast, Make Math Moments. The website, www.makemathmoments.com. Um, we'll have links in the show notes for all of those uh, those those social media accounts and websites and the podcast, et cetera. So, John, uh, thanks for being here, man. I really appreciate it. Great to catch up. Thanks, Tom. Pleasure as always. And uh, thanks, uh, thanks for having me. This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. You can find out more at teachbetter.com slash podcast. Now let's get back to the episode. In Assessment Corner this week, I want to emphasize the importance of being able to tell the difference between the principles of assessment, implementation choices, and implementation errors. Now, last week, I sent out a few tweets about assessment and grading that seem to get a little traction and, quite honestly, kind of seem to trigger a few people. I was saying to a few people last week that the, uh, well, actually crowd was in rare form last week. I love people who just lurk on Twitter. You know, you never hear from them. And then it's like you live rent-free in their head. As soon as you tweet something, they come out of the woodwork. And it's the, well, actually, this is... Um, and I don't even follow them or whatever. Anyway, in response to one of the tweets, and yeah, I still call them tweets, even though I'm supposed to call them posts because it's now called X, not Twitter, but I still call them tweets. Um, several people were telling me why they were against standards-based grading, and none of the reasons had anything to do with the principles of standards-based grading. They all had to do with implementation choices and implementation errors. But here's the worst part. When I pointed that out, Rather than accepting that that had been clarified for them, they just doubled down and reasserted their position. Now, I know it was probably rather naive of me to think anyone on social media would actually change their minds. <laughs> that probably hasn't happened since 2011. I don't know. The whole series of back and forths caused me to reflect and wonder if we are ultimately doomed when it comes to any kind of reform effort. I mean, I don't, that's a little hyperbolic, but, you know, it's just, I don't really feel like we're doomed, but at some point it just starts to feel that way. Because I just thought to myself, if we can't tell the difference between the principles of assessment, implementation choices, and implementation errors, um, we we might never manifest what it is we want to manifest in our school. So let's start with the last one, the errors. I mentioned implementation errors a few months back on Twitter as well. Um, unrelated, different, completely different thread. Uh, and one person came back at me and told me I was teacher bashing. <laughs> what? Does any rational person think we can implement something new and not make mistakes or have things that would need to improve upon? Like bashing? Well, I just thought to myself, that is way too fragile for my taste. I actually wasn't sure if it was actually fragility or arrogance. Like, are we that arrogant to think that anytime we implement something for the first time, it's going to be inherently flawless? Or... Are we that fragile that any time anyone mentions that something may have not gone perfectly, we just get offended? Huh, I just, I don't know, maybe it's both. But before going any further on the errors, let me let me take a step back on the non-negotiables. The non-negotiables in reform efforts, especially assessment and grading reform efforts, is sound assessment practices and principles. You want to change grading in your schools, start with assessment architecture, for example. Assessment design, your grades are only as accurate as the assessments they're based on. Thinking about 
ideas like reliability and consistency and validity, making valid interpretations based on clear criteria, and that our grades are only about learning. So there are a few non-negotiables in this work, and we have to understand what those are. However, within those non-negotiables, there are many choices schools get to make or have to make. How many levels do you want? What symbols are you going to use? Are you going to report on the individual standards, the groupings, the strands, the categories? How are you clustering them? What would an adequate sampling of the learning look like? What's your system of reassessment? How do you hold, what's the system of holding kids accountable? All of that. There are a ton of choices. In fact, there's probably more choices than non-negotiables. As long as the choices stay within the parameters of sound assessment practices, you're good. There's no one way to do this work. And sometimes we try, uh, you know, we try things and, and it doesn't work. On occasion, I'll hear something that sounds like this. You know, uh, Tom, I tried that reassessment thing and it didn't work. Uh, kids just blew off the first assessment and just wanted a retest. That's not the idea of reassessment's fault. That's our fault. Now, how do I know that? Because that's exactly what happened to me when I first started reforming my assessment and grading practices some 20 years ago. I created a system in my classroom that allowed students to just blow off the first assessment and do the reassessment with no parameters, no rules, no expectations in place. So what did I do? I closed the loophole. That was an implementation error. Again, are we that fragile that we can't point out implementation errors? That's teacher bashing? <laughs> Don't even understand that. I. I truly believe in being thoughtful and purposeful and supportive. Um, this is one of the most important jobs in the world. We, we, do, we do things that really get underappreciated. But this is a little too soft for my taste. Nothing ever goes perfectly the first time. So why would we not anticipate some need for correction? Like when I hear that, that'll never work. Like I literally stand before people telling them how I or others implemented something how we made it work, and their response is, that'll never work. Now, look, I've, I've come to understand that the phrase, that'll never work, is often code. Not always, but it's often code for, I'm not sure how I could make that work, or I'm not sure I want to make that work. Uh, so there's code words that you pick up on as you do this work long enough, you start to realize that what people are actually saying is not really what they're saying. Now, if I sound a little frustrated, it's because, honestly, I am a little I think we have to be collectively better as a profession at critiquing ourselves and seeing things through and refining our practices. I, I'd like to think the majority of teachers and principals are like that, and, and I think that's the case. But even if it's a minority, it can be enough to notice and enough to make it difficult for schools to take things to scale. We have to be able to tell the difference between non-negotiables and the implementation choices we make because when things don't go well, or let's just say things don't go as well as we had hoped, We'd have to know if it was a bad idea or an implementation error. The research gives us the good ideas, but no research is ironclad. I always like to say that the research gives us the most favorable course of action given the largest numbers of students, but there's always an exception to the rule. Now, admittedly, sometimes it feels like we get mixed messages in the research and um, mixed messages out there online and wherever you are listening. And a lot of the hyperbole gets thrust upon these ideas. In, in assessment and grading, if you hear the words always and never, that's usually a clue that someone is oversimplifying an idea, especially in this realm, because most aspects of assessment are context-dependent and nuanced. So the words always and never rarely apply. So as an individual, 
and, and maybe more importantly as a team or a guiding coalition. Be clear about the difference between a favorable practice and an implementation choice. So we can be clear about what is an implementation error that we have a chance to correct. We have to be able to tell the difference and not be so fragile about it or our change efforts may be doomed. Okay, that's it for this week. Remember to follow the podcast or me on Twitter, now X, at Tom Shimmer, at Tom Shimmer Pod. Instagram, it's at Tom Shimmer, at Tom Shimmer Podcast. Uh, TikTok, at Tom Shimmer Podcast. And of course, the YouTube channel as well. Also, please email the pod, TomShimmerPod at gmail.com if you've got questions for Assessment Corner or you have any suggestions or feedback for me about the podcast. And a reminder, check the show notes for the links for the upcoming professional learning events as well as my new book that's available. Please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, especially on Apple Podcasts, but a rating and review on any platform will help grow the podcast's reach. And if you like what you hear, please keep spreading the word about the podcast to your friends, your colleagues, or on social media. I would really appreciate that. Have a great week, everyone. 